Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're speaking to Ali Alvis about book history. I first came across Ali last year on YouTube where Ali's Book Historia channel offers some highly educational bite-sized videos on book history. Ali was a special collections librarian, but switched to rare bookselling and now works for Type Punch Matrix, a bookselling firm based in Washington, D.C., featuring Brian Cassidy and Rebecca Romney. I highly recommend Ali's YouTube videos. Ali tackles various subjects, including vervels, manicules, recycled manuscripts, miniature books and metal type. Ali also posts to Twitter and Instagram as Book Historia, where you can see more rare books that catch your eye. Welcome, Ali. Hello, Richard. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So I have made quite a few YouTube videos, and I do know there are a lot of work. Uh, What motivated you to make these videos about rare books? (laughs) Well, I can firmly say I didn't know how much work they would be until I started making them. Um, I had no video editing experience whatsoever. Um, I'm lucky enough to have librarian research skills, though, so I could look up all sorts of different Um, tutorials on YouTube and uh, figuring out the best editing software and so on and so forth. Um, But really the reasoning behind starting the YouTube series was the pandemic. Um, It was several months into lockdown. Um, I hadn't been in the library for several months And I just really missed talking to people about books. That's always been my favorite part of my job as a rare book librarian and now a bookseller is telling people about cool old books and explaining why they're cool. Um, So luckily enough, uh, I am a bit of a book collector myself and I am a hoarder of photographs of books. Uh, I have been on many research trips to many libraries for many different research projects, and I have a gajillion files on my phone and on my computer of all the books that I've seen. So in a way, I felt like I had a digital library and enough sort of physical examples that I could hold up and show for a video to make it a kind of simulacrum of a reading room tour or talking to people one-on-one. I'm always a little bit jealous of the people who do a very quick video on their phone of someone falling over or a dog doing something funny and then get five million views. (laughs) Um, Yes, videos are a lot of work, aren't they? Um, I, I have always also been jealous of that sort of viral nature of things where, you know, it's, it's clear that it was a spur of the moment thing and someone just sort of, takes the video, throws it up on Twitter and says, ha wasn't this funny? And then all of a sudden they wake up the next morning with 5 million views and like, what happened there? <laughs> um, it's, it's part of the whole social media uh, environment that we live in now, the, the unpredictability of um, interest. Uh, and that's partially dependent on the various algorithms that, you know, Facebook or Twitter or even YouTube have where it serves people information uh, and content based on what 
the algorithm algorithm thinks that that person might like. So right. it's it's funny to sort of experience what the algorithm thinks of your videos and uh, how they get served up and which ones end up more popular than others. Yes, and then there's the comments, which is also uh, an interesting learning experience, I find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've I've been lucky enough so far to have relatively tame comment sections. Uh, I posted a new video today, um, and I've gotten a couple, you know, spam comments, which are thankfully uh, YouTube has nice capabilities to flag those. Um, but yeah, the, the ways that the algorithm sees people engaging and then further serves up that content, it's, it's fascinating. And for all of my, uh, sort of amateur video editing abilities, I have no idea how the algorithms work. It's, it's witchcraft. Well, either way, your, your videos are super entertaining. What I like is how you blend history with lots of modern pop culture references. So you reference Led Zeppelin or uh, you did on one video, you referenced Dead or Alive. And I Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I did laugh out loud at that reference. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So do you think that the rare book world needs to be made more accessible, more more fun when, when you're making these videos? I do. I I think that the old perception of rare books is thankfully becoming more out of date. You know, the stereotypes of tight-knit librarians with glasses and buns on their heads and the idea of gatekeeping and trying to keep people out of the collections rather than bringing people into collections and the world of collecting. Um, And I think that a lot of librarians and booksellers are very much embracing that change and moving forward and trying to make rare books more accessible. Uh, And it's something that's really a passion for me. Um, I I like putting those funny references in there and it makes me happy that you said that you laughed because I chuckled when I wrote it. Um, it's, it's just one of those things where I like to put in as many ways in as I can in my videos and in my content. So if somebody is quickly looking at something and they say like, oh yeah, Led Zeppelin, I, I, I personally know Led Zeppelin, I listen to their music and they go away from the video that they just watched. And a few months later they think like, oh, what are those movable book thingies. Led Zeppelin had an album with one of them incorporated. And, you know, it just, it lays that foundation of awareness of rare books. Um, And that's the same reason I make the horrible puns and really stupid jokes is (laughs) um, they they make me chuckle. I I don't know if they make other people chuckle or just cringe. but it's it's a way in for people. It's something that will hook into a brain, hopefully, um, and bring a little bit of book history with it. Um, you know, obviously, I don't expect people to come away from these videos um, as absolute rare book masters and completely knowledgeable about every aspect of rare books. Uh, but just to give a little taster of what is involved in understanding rare books and working with them and what you might come across in a reading room. 
So in my, my intro, I referenced vavels and manicules, neither of which I was familiar with. So can you explain what they are for our listeners? Sure. And those are two very interesting topics, um, which is why I made videos on them. Um, Volvels are movable book machines. They are um, often circles uh, with movable parts used for calculations. Um, they emerged in the manuscript period before the uh, Gutenberg printing press. And um, they're basically calculators. They are very, very old school calculators. Um, they come in a variety of shapes and sizes and fanciness. Um, some volvels can be beautifully hand colored. Um, they can have images of dragons on them and they can be absolutely sort of fascinating or, you know, more run of the mill, uh, bare bones. This is for calculating and that's it. No, no pretense of making it aesthetically pleasing. Um, but they were often found in books about um, the planets, uh, cosmology, um, math books, that sort of thing. Uh, they can also be used for geometry. Um, it's anything that, you know, your TI-85 could be used for. Uh, a Volvel could kind of also be used for, although it, it took a bit more uh, right. understanding. Um, is it a French word? It is. Uh, it, it is. It comes from to spin uh, or to rotate um, volvel. So um, the word can also be applied to any sort of spinning document. So in my videos, I mention uh, a Led Zeppelin album with sort of an interior volvel, which you spin a, a circular card and it moves images through um, little peekaboo holes in the album sleeve of uh, the different band members. Right. And, and a manicule? Um, yeah, What's manicules. A manicule? <laughs> um, manicules, that was a fascinating sort of rabbit hole to go down. Um, manicules come from the Latin manu for hand and uh, the diminutive cule. So it means little hand. And these are those little pointing fingers that you see sometimes in the margins of manuscripts and printed books. But also when you hover your mouse over a clickable link, it becomes a manicule. So I find that connection absolutely fascinating that people were drawing these little hands and margins to point to interesting uh, sections of text or to highlight uh, certain references that they want to come back to later. And now in 2021, we're still using them for basically the same thing. Um, at the end of my video, I always say, hover those manicules over the like and subscribe buttons. And it's just, it's really surreal. Um, and I didn't realize how much sort of engineering went into the digital manicule until I was doing research for the video. Um, Apple actually were the, the first ones to use the uh, finger pointer, the manicule cursor. Um, and it's, it's just so cool. Uh, and the thought that went into it and the, the tradition and it's fascinating. I also thought of uh, the Monty Python animations. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The Monty Python animations are 
Um, they come from a lot of different sources, actually. There are some that come from illuminated manuscripts, uh, and uh, the one that I'm most familiar with is that giant foot, um, which definitely has its origins in, in sort of marginalia uh, grotesques, um, illuminated grotesques that live in the margins of illuminated manuscripts, um, sort of weird, monstrous, otherworldly figures that kind of hang out and offer uh, uh, contrast between uh, the text and the the literal and figurative margins. Um, but yeah, all of those like funky typographic ornaments that they use, um, Monty Python is a master of sort of found art in books in those uh, those transitions, those animated transitions. Um, it's funny to have sort of grown up watching Monty Python and then having not watched it and coming back to it with my book historical knowledge. I'm like, oh, I recognize that. Oh, that one. Oh, that one came from a 14th century illuminated manuscript. You can tell because of the style. And um, it's it's funny and it's exciting to sort of see uh, antiquarian book references in sort of normal things. Yeah. So where did it all start for you? How did you become fascinated in book history? Well, my path to book history is not really a linear one, per se. Um, and I've talked about this a little bit on Twitter, that occasionally I have a bit of imposter syndrome about the fact that, you know, I wasn't born an old book lover. I, this wasn't something that I wanted to do straight out of the womb. Um, I've always liked old stuff. I've been interested in antiques and I've always loved books, but it wasn't until um, my, let's see, when was the first time I truly saw a rare book? Must have been with my grandparents. Um, they had several old books, but not in the way that, you know, we would think of old books. These were like books from the 1930s that, they, they had as children and they were their school books or picture books. Uh, and that was really my, my first experience with old books. And when I was young, I never really thought of it beyond that. Um, and when I was doing my undergraduate degree in linguistics, I became interested in the historical development of the English language. And through that, I started looking at facsimiles of uh, early English, Middle English texts, um, and it occurred to me that these exist somewhere. I don't know where, but they're around. And I, I kind of followed that thread to the University of Edinburgh, uh, where they have a material culture and the history of the book master's degree. Um, I was looking at either going into publishing or something else for my master's degree. And um, when I came across that Edinburgh program, I just thought, Oh, and everything kind of clicked into place. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I kind of came to rare books a bit later than some people. But also, I think the, this path is more normal than uh, some might think. I, I don't know that there are so many people who are born rare book librarians or rare book sellers or rare book people. Yeah. Sounds pretty normal to me. I'm not sure. How many people have uh, illuminated manuscripts in their home? Right. Um, 
But for instance, if, if you do go to, I don't know, the British Museum or you do go to the Morgan Library or you do go to, I don't know, Smithsonian, then you may well mm -hmm. see them. But you're going to mm -hmm. see a lot of other stuff as well in the museum of that scope. So, yeah. Um, and interestingly, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, so it's not exactly the uh, rare book capital of the world by any means. Um, and most of the, the historical sites around there, the museums are centered around the Old West and um, the expansion of America and that sort of thing. So yeah. even when I came across old stuff, it wasn't old books per se. It was It was a very different uh general appearance of history so when i when i did go to larger museums and saw books in cases i thought oh <laughs> right which brings us on to book eras so is there a particular era of book history that you're particularly interested in <laughs> um I've, I've confused many people uh who have come to know me through one of my interests and then became aware of other interests of mine, all of them bibliographic. Um, some people know me as a medievalist. Uh, other people know me as a specialist in arts and crafts bindings. Um, I, I'm kind of omnivorous when it comes to books. Um, I think my first book passion was medieval illuminated manuscripts, um, just because they're so magical. Uh, there's there's nothing that compares to being in a reading room or being physically with an illuminated manuscript. There's so much um, sort of textural and visual and even olfactory senses that you get with being in in the same space as a manuscript. It's just it's really an experience. Um, and the first medieval manuscript I saw was a giant Bible historiale at uh, the University of Edinburgh um, that had been rebound. And it was, it was life-changing. Uh, I, I can't really overstate that. Um, and, but through my time at the University of Edinburgh and uh, at the University of Glasgow as well, I became interested in the rebinding of illuminated manuscripts because so many of them lack their original medieval binding, um, sort of necessarily because medieval manuscripts are pretty heavy. Um, sometimes they're very heavily used and they just acquire wear and tear uh, or tastes change and uh, collectors and librarians decide that they should be bound a different way. Um, we don't, really like that anymore. But uh, in the past, uh, librarians and book collectors were quick to rebind their illuminated manuscripts. Um, but through that, I became interested in the work of Douglas Cockrell and Son, uh, English bookbinders. Um, they did a lot of work for Scottish universities, uh, rebinding some of their collections in a very sympathetic way, um, not making them look like bejeweled ostentatious, horrible things, although those have their charms too. Um, but, you know, making it subtle, making the binding sort of secondary to the content of the book. Sounds uh, very which, Scottish Presbyterian. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Douglas Cockrell and Son were very firmly English. They just ended up doing a lot of work in Scotland. 
Um, so I, I really like the aesthetic of that early 20th century arts and crafts binding. Uh, the T.J. Cobden Sanderson, the Dove's Press, uh, that, that sort of look. Uh, mm. There's just something very charming about it. So now that you're in the bookselling world, do, do you get excited at all when you see a, uh, an interesting 20th century book? Yes. So when I was a librarian, I had sort of a, a cursory knowledge of artists' books, uh, mostly in the sense of, you know, those sculptural types of artist books where they stack on top of each other or there are lots of different parts and pieces and they really push the envelope in terms of, of what a codex is, what a book can be. But through my work here at Type Punch Matrix, I've been dealing with a lot of conceptual artist books, which on the outside, they just look like a book. Um, some of them are just saddle stitch they're just stapled in the middle and they just look like little pamphlets or or something like that but the content is really it it's not heavy but it's it's evocative um even if it's just images by understanding sort of where the artist is coming from or the poet um and even a book with a with just a title and then just images no text can say so much. And I, I've really enjoyed getting in touch with um, sort of 1970s, 1980s artist books in that way. Um, I don't think I'll ever be an artist book collector, but I, I have a new respect for them and I'm really enjoying learning more about them. Okay. Now, I believe some uh, congratulations are in order. So since your transition into book selling, I believe you've sold your first book. So do tell us about it. <laughs> Indeed. So this sale actually came from social media, uh, which is very exciting. I sold a copy of uh, like a pocket edition of Virgil, uh, a Scottish imprint with these beautiful end leaves, uh, brocade, gold, floral uh, end leaves. And it's it's very exciting to have made my first sale. Um, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm kind of a, a baby bookseller. I've only been at Type Punch Matrix for about a month and a half, a uh, little over now. Um, and it's, it's enlightening. It's absolutely fascinating to learn about books from this angle. Um, I, I really feel that um, understanding rare books is something that it's not flat. You can't just look at a book and understand it and be done with it. There's there's the text, there's the physical nature of it, there's how it came to be where it is, whether that is in a collection or at an antiquarian book dealer uh, or at an institution. Um, there are so many stories that can be told by and learned from rare books, and it's really exciting to be on the bookseller side. Um, and understanding how to deal with books uh, from that angle. So your personal collection, what is it you actually collect then? Um, I think the most discreet collection I have is miniature books. Um, I, I just love miniature books, and I have made a video of miniature books. They are just adorable. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that their adorableness is a, a real hook for me and for others. 
um, that beyond their sort of bibliographic value or their um, their status as sort of a wonder of book production, um, how they could make them so small, how they were able to bind them, such tiny things, how they could set type like that. Um, they're just beyond all that. They're just so cute. Um, and I can say that they are very easy to move <laughs> when you're moving house. They, they all fit in one tiny little box and you are done. Um, but I also collect books that I would say are examples of various book production methods. Um, so I'm very interested in bindings. I have um, a binding with exposed wooden boards. I have one in wrappers. I have uh, semi-limp vellum, um, scale board. Uh, one day I do want an alum Todd pigskin binding. I don't have one of those yet. Um, but books that have doodles in them, books that are um, not Western. I have a beautiful Japanese book, uh, a guidebook to calligraphy that has been um, sort of cut apart in some ways. People have taken out pieces that they, they particularly liked and wanted to copy. Um, so I, I really like books that say something. Um, I, I don't read <laughs> any of my old books, uh, mostly because my Latin is not as good as some. Uh, I just, I really enjoy them for their physicality and what they can tell us about how books were made and why. For being an object and for their history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, as, as a historical object. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck with your, um, your book selling career. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. We have one more question for you, uh, which we ask all our guests, and that is what book or books are you currently reading? Hmm. So I am in a constant state of reading many, many, many books. Uh, none of them fiction, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I, I reference a lot of books all the time for all sorts of reasons, whether that be cataloging. Um, I have Joanna Drucker's uh, The Century of Artist Books on my desk right now. Um, I use Sarah Verner's early printed books uh, extensively. Um, and I, I don't know, I feel like I'm reading everything and nothing all at once all the time. <laughs> How do you mean everything and nothing? That I, I tend not to read these reference books cover to cover. Um, there's this sense that if you're reading a book, if you're really reading a book that, especially with fiction books, you're reading it front to back. Um, whereas a lot of the books I use, I just reference, um, I pull out the information that I need, uh, which is, it's still reading, but it's not really the, the kind of cozy reading that some people would prefer. And honestly, I would prefer, um, I have a very low tolerance for sad stories, so I, I tend to avoid a lot of fiction, um, although I am reading uh, Terry Pratchett's Mort right now, um, making my way through that, uh, although I, I keep having to put it down to look up book history stuff. That's, uh, I think that's all we have time for this week. Uh, so I want to say many thanks to Ali Alvis for joining us. 
Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, this is my first podcast experience, so um, I, I really appreciate it. Well, if you're lucky, we'll have you on again once you've done a few more videos or sold a few more <laughs> books and we can have another chat. It's always nice <laughs> to catch up. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. So that is Ali Alvis, who is a bookseller at Type Punch Matrix. And she runs a YouTube account called Book Historia. And you also find uh, her on Twitter and Instagram, also under the Book Historia name. Many thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis. And you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast. And we'll see you all again soon. Thank you.